Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, uh, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and uh, Columbia University professor is with us this time in uh, Seoul, Korea. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the show, we will be addressing a handful of questions from our listeners. Uh, we have gotten an incredible number of very interesting questions left on our website. Um, a first batch of answers is coming to you today. So stick around for that. But first, we wanted to do something from the news, as always. And the data point there is 2030. And that is the year by which Saudi Arabia, according to an ambitious economic agenda devised by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, that's the year by which he would like to transform the country's economy. The kingdom is now looking to boost its non-oil economy with the pilgrimage at the center. The country has announced the plan to set up a development company that will add 150 new buildings. 70, right now, it's an economy dominated by the export of oil. That, of course, is the reason that President Joe Biden has just arrived there. He's hoping to persuade the crown prince to produce more oil than they currently are. All the Gulf states are meeting. I indicated to them that I thought they should be increasing oil production generically, not to the Saudis particularly. And I think we're going to, I hope we see them in their own interest concluding that makes sense to do. But we don't hear much else about the Saudi economy. And within the next eight years, according to this uh, vision, Saudi Arabia should have, quote, either a vibrant society, a thriving economy, an ambitious nation uh, producing all sorts of things beyond oil. So I thought we'd look at what exactly the state of the overall economy is right now. So, Adam, what kind of economy does Saudi Arabia have outside of oil at the present moment? I mean, is it good at making anything else beyond uh, those barrels of oil? Uh, it's, it's pretty hard to tell, really, because if you've got an economy as dominated by a single massively in-demand global commodity like oil, everything else gets crowded out. So, I mean, the Saudi economy overall is a kind of medium-sized economy, $700 billion. It's not in the big league, but it exports $206 billion worth of mineral fuels every year. And that's the bit which is really globally competitive. And if you add in plastics, also from the petrochemical pipeline, obviously, and organic chemicals, you're up at about 90% of Saudi uh, exports. So insofar as we can judge, you know, when we ask, you know, is an economy good at making anything else, the standard way you would go about trying to answer that is in terms of the notion of comparative advantage. You know, where in the global division of labor does an economy sit? And in the Saudi case, the oil sector just dominates the whole story, 90% plus. Um, that doesn't mean to say other activities don't go on in Saudi Arabia. It's, it's large enough to sustain a commercial society, you know, healthcare, education, and so on, all of which potentially could emerge in the future. 
as sources of, of revenue. Um, it's strategically positioned in the Gulf, after all. It has a Mecca and the giant uh, travel tourism engine of the, of the Hajj, the great pilgrimage of the Muslim world. But right now, as things stand, it's oil that's the, you know, the one big show in town. So what is the status right now of Mohammed bin Salman's big vaunted uh, vision 2030 for transforming Saudi Arabia's economy? Has that gone anywhere since he's announced it? Well, money has been spent. I mean, it's a gigantic program. It's early days. And those early days were interrupted, first of all, by the scandal around the killing of Khashoggi and then the impact of the um, COVID crisis, which sent oil prices down massively. The oil prices collapsed, we should remember. And now we're in a new phase with oil prices, you know, hovering around $100 a barrel or more. And so Saudi's revenue is a, a flush. So Saudi is negotiating some pretty serious choppy waters. Um, it has to be said that the story so far is that progress is more modest than, you know, you would hope for. I mean, the aim of the game around this gigantic neom urban complex, um, which the Saudis are aiming to build, is to energize the private sector, really, and to suck in foreign capital and to mobilize private investment. And we're not seeing a great deal of that so far. And there are two worries here. One is that Saudi, since the 1970s, has repeatedly engaged in efforts to break dependence on oil by means of spending oil revenue from the state side. And those efforts have repeatedly come to grief. There are, you know, the deserts are full of the stranded remnants of great white elephant projects, which came to nothing, um, including, you know, entire cities, vast uh, office complexes, uh, which have never really gone anywhere. And not only that, Saudi is not the only competitor in this race for the future. I mean, it's obviously the largest member of the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, and within that, every single one of the major players, the Emirates, Kuwait, and so on, all have their own vision 2020, 2030, 2035 type projects. And Dubai in particular already has a huge uh, head start in terms of actually developing commercially viable, globally competitive financial services, commercial hubs, and tourism, all of which Saudi would like to have, but it would require a sacrifice of the highly conservative domestic norms of Saudi Arabia to really develop a substantial globally viable commercial center, let alone a tourism hub. There are some plans to expand the pilgrimage economy, but there are obvious problems with this, given the restrictive codes of the Wahhabi interpretation of Islam, which Saudi's regime favors. So it's 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 an, an impasse. And if it attempted to move up the value chain into things like um, microchips and, and high tech, it, it would run into really fearsome competitors. The combined GDP of the GCC of the Gulf Cooperation Council is comparable to that of South Korea, where I currently am. And South Korea, you know, boasts half a dozen globally competitive major players in, you know, everything from shipbuilding and LNG tanker construction to Samsung in ultra high tech microchips. And that would be the sort of player that you would be going up against. Um, so it's, it isn't simply the, the vainglorious ambition of the, the Saudis that is, makes one sceptical about this project. It's also, also the sense that really this is a big ask to transition an economy like this from the heavy dependence on fossil fuels to a much more diversified system. It's just difficult to do. Just to follow up here, I mean, what exactly is, if you could put your finger on it, I mean, what exactly is 
the relevant constraint here in Saudi Arabia. I mean, there's clearly no shortage of money. They have all of this oil money that they can throw at this problem. And yet, as you're saying, it's not a sort of promising basis for this kind of economic transformation. Other countries have managed, you're pointing to Korea. So, I mean, what exactly is the holdup, the constraint? I think it's I think it's investor interest. I mean, there are plenty of places in the world, you know, offering you the opportunity to do government subsidized investment in diversified commerce and high tech industry. And why of all places in the world would you pick Saudi? Saudi basically has an identity problem. And if you were to put private money in, you would be very concerned about about your ability to get it out. The politics uh, of investing in Saudi Arabia are, are very tricky. And you would have no confidence in the rule of law necessarily. This isn't to say that Saudi's been an egregious violator of private property rights, but then there's been relatively little Western investment there. So this hasn't been tested in to any considerable extent. Um, so I think that's the problem. It's just like of all the places in all the world, why would you put your money there? Um, yeah, we, we've talked about this kind of stalled 2030 agenda. Yeah, that gets me wondering, are there any successful examples out there of oil countries that have managed to transition away from this kind of fossil fuel based economy? I mean, if you are a medium to small sized economy and you have a lot of oil or gas, you have a problem. And it's called the Dutch disease. Um, and it, it came from the experience of the Netherlands when they discovered natural gas there, um, which became a major export from the late 60s onwards. And the effect of that was to drive the Dutch currency, when the Dutch still had an independent currency, the Gilder, up against all other currencies in Europe. And that made other exports from the Netherlands uncompetitive. So this is this crowding out effect. If you if you have a strong export sector, and it doesn't have to be a, a natural commodity, it could be any particular thing that you export. If that dominates your foreign account and drives the foreign exchange movement, then everything else in your economy will get squeezed out. And so the trick in managing a large oil or gas bonanza is as far as possible to offshore the entire operation into somebody else's currency. So you run the entire operation in a global currency of some type. And then in a measured way, I mean, usually dollars, because that's what oil is priced in. And then in a measured way, you drip feed, as it were, the benefits from this offshore dollarized operation back into your domestic economy in a way which doesn't cause damage to it. And by, I think, common agreement, the most sophisticated player of this game is Norway, which has built this huge sovereign wealth fund over a trillion dollars. Um, the Norwegians are one of the largest shareholders in the global economy. They buy measured percentage points of every global equity market to give them a very balanced portfolio. So this is widely considered to be the most sophisticated program of this type, managing Dutch disease. And the results are nevertheless that 67% of Norwegian exports are mineral fuel. So even in a highly sophisticated program like that, you still have an export sector largely dominated by oil. So everyone else, it's really very difficult to do this. So this is not an easy problem to manage. And I mean, we haven't, you know, so far had very many examples of exiting from oil and gas because, you know, the story of global economic development since the early 20th century was drill, baby, drill. Like, you know, if you if you had it, you used it and the market was there. And it'll be very interesting to see over the next generation if the energy transition transpires in the way in which we hope it will, that how economies will adjust to this, because it's, it's going to be a huge challenge. Yeah, it sounds like Norway is one place to keep an eye on. Um but yeah, I guess I wanted to end with a question about Saudi Arabia's status more generally um, in the global 
economy. You know, the, Saudi is in the G20 club, right? This is the kind of club of highly industrialized countries, you know, an expansion of the kind of core G7 to the broader mix of countries around the world. The countries, I guess, that are not in this extractive business, do they kind of have some condescension towards these countries like Saudi Arabia that they're, you know, obviously meeting alongside in these G20 summits? Well, I think it's important to emphasize that the G20 is not a club of the highly developed industrialized economies. That's the OECD or the G7, G8, right? So the G20 reflected the, was created um, in an effort after the emerging market financial crisis of the late 1990s to create a new structure that would represent precisely not the uh, established clique and club of industrialized economies, but in fact, the world economy. So that the metric was not level of development, but significance to the world economy also in a political sense. Uh, And that was explicitly the criteria used in a series of relatively ad hoc decisions made in the late 1990s to constitute a finance minister's meeting. And then from 2008 onwards, in the middle of the financial crisis, it was upgraded to a heads of government meeting, which is the G20 that we know today. And so the logic of including Saudi Arabia was was really very compelling, right? Because if you're composing a picture of the world economy, not in terms of developmental grade, but in terms of significance for what you might call sort of the global economic narrative, then obviously you have to have Saudi Arabia in because it's the dominant player in OPEC and the swing producer in the global oil market. And the other two swing producers, as we subsequently emerge, Russia and then United States with shale, are also, of course, members of the G20. But so is South Africa, for instance, which has an economy which is half the size of Saudis. Um, And it's there because there had to be an African representative in the G20. And South Africa was the obvious, you know, representative. But, you know, both Argentina and Brazil are there because they represent Latin America, not because Argentina's economy per se would warrant its inclusion. And then you have Indonesia, you know, uh, representing um, Southeast Asia, and also, of course, just a giant economy by this point, and India. So the Saudis are in the G20 by logic, right? That's that's why they're there. And I think it's also, from a kind of economist point of view, important to emphasize that, you know, you don't get added bonus points for manufacturing things. I mean, in the world economy, you get added bonus points for having commodities that people want, however you made them. Um, and obviously, manufacturing them will create an economy where you have jobs for tens of millions of people. And that is Saudi Arabia's chronic problem is that their non-diversified economy does not generate jobs for the increasingly educated Saudi population. About half of Saudis now have college degrees. And so where are they going to work is the problem. So that, I think, is the logic. And, you know, not having a functional G20 in which Saudi was, you know, a, a competent contributor is actually a major problem for global governance at this point, um, because then you end up in these side deals, which we've seen in recent months between, you know, basically the United States trying to figure out how it stands in relation to OPEC plus, where plus is Russia and Russia is now essentially in some sort of undeclared state of hostility with the West. So Saudi becomes more and more important, as we've seen. I mean, it was not Joe Biden's plan to meet with MBS, right? That was absolutely not part of his agenda. He's doing it because... In a crisis like this, Saudi's indispensable and central role to the world economy is, is dramatically demonstrated. You use the term significant as a kind of criterion, but yeah, that whether that is an economic criteria or not, it sounds like it's a political criteria. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird hybrid. I think it's a political economic you know, uh, criterion. It's the, it's the mixture of the two together. 
which is why I said, you know, it's something about the narrative of the world economy. You know, what do we, what story is it that we think is moving the world? And right now it's the energy crisis. And so, of course, you need all of the major energy producers part of this club. Got it. Yeah. Politics and economics, inseparable, I guess, at the end of the day. Um, we will leave it there for now and come back to answer some of your questions for Adam. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know. Not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carried around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, welcome back. So, as I mentioned, we will be addressing our listener questions for the first time. Here's a handful. There are many more to come. So, uh, yeah, look forward to that. And in the meantime, bring us more questions. Go to our website and leave more. But in the meantime, here are the first handful. So our first listener question comes from Andy Patterson. Hi, Cameron and Adam. Um, I'm an airline pilot, and I'd like to thank you for your recent uh, podcast, How Flying Got to Be So Miserable. I'd like to ask you about a follow-up data point, which is 115. That's the kilograms of CO2 emitted per minute by the aircraft type that I fly, an Airbus 320 series. Uh, 737 MAX has uh, very similar numbers. That means a ton of CO2 every nine minutes or so. Now, I think the business models of airlines need to be viewed through the lens of the environmental crisis. Airbus have 5,636 of these aeroplanes on order. They're going to be delivering them um, for at least the next 10 or 15 years, and they're going to be in service for 25 years beyond that. 
that takes us way beyond 2050 when these aeroplanes are still going to be in service. How does the airline business model adapt to that? It seems to me that there are two possible outcomes. One is that we carry on emitting at the rate that we are, and that means the attendant environmental consequences are going to be catastrophic, or there's a complete transformation of the airline industry and those become stranded assets. I'm not optimistic for the future of the industry, and not as optimistic as you seem to be, Adam, but I'd really like to hear your view of where we're going with that. Well, first of all, Andy, this is a great question. Thank you so much for getting in touch. Um, it's so good to hear from folks inside the industries that we talk about on the show. And the issue that you raise is a real one. I'm a frequent flyer myself, and every single second you spend in one of the airplanes that you and your colleagues pilot, you sit there feeling guilty about what you're doing. So this is a, a big deal. It's also, however, worth saying that right now emissions from aircraft are a relatively small portion of overall climate emissions. We think account for about 2.1% of all human-induced carbon dioxide emissions, about 12% of CO2 emissions from transport, compared to 74% from road transport. That's the good news, um, insofar as you can call it that. The, the bad news is that emissions at high altitude, which is, of course, where this CO2 is emitted from the giant jet engines, are particularly bad. And secondly, these emissions are rapidly rising and they're set to rise even more rapidly as the global upper middle class in Asia in particular takes to the air, which is where all of those future orders for Airbuses and Boeings are going to go to. And thirdly, it's really hard to see plausible alternatives because um, electric power, given the weight of batteries, doesn't seem like a plausible alternative, especially for long haul aviation. Hydrogen may be an option, the so-called clean air fuels, clean kerosene, which is much more expensive. But that's certainly one move that we need to make. It's kind of biofuels, basically. But the what are the options here? And you, you ask for options. And, and are there any reasons for thinking that this is a problem that we can tackle? I mean, I think, first of all, the first option is the high-pressure development of technologies that can at least mitigate to some degree. We need ultra-efficient aircraft burning, less damaging fuels. This is a clearly, preeminently an issue for transatlantic industrial policy, because really the source of all of the commercial aircraft in the world, with a few exceptions, are European or American. So it's between Airbus and Boeing. And then it's between the aero engine manufacturers to look for solutions. And so this is within the scope of the policy remit of governments on both sides of the Atlantic. We, we probably at some point are going to have to talk about some kind of cap or at least way of reducing the rate of expansion of flying globally. This could be by pricing. Uh, a tax on frequent flyers would be a really good idea. It would hit precisely the high emitting groups in the world because frequent flying is associated with all sorts of other types of high emitting activity or some kind of rationing, potentially with the possibility of allowing people, as it were, to trade their ration of air miles to people who are willing to pay more for it. And yes, some of the existing capacity in this sector is going to become stranded assets. Um, in other words, some of the aircraft are going to be obsolete and will have to be retired early. But aviation is an interesting case of this happening anyway, given the shifting patterns of consumer demand and fuel costs and so on. And so stranded assets are indeed a problem. Um, but really on the scale of the global stranded assets issue, they are manageable. And this is an industry which in any case in already you know, is, is regulated quite heavily, even in the area of deregulated aircraft uh, aviation, and already enjoys very substantial government support. So it's a question of using those policy levers to produce the kind of change that we want to see, I think. 
Yeah, that does seem to be one of the themes of our podcast episode was that it, airlines are just a tough business in general. So maybe that's some weird solace that if it gets tougher, well, it's always been it's always been tough for these airlines. So maybe a few more stranded assets won't be unfamiliar, at least. The next question comes from Giampero Campa. Hello, I wanted to ask the following question. And uh, so the birth rate is declining in many advanced countries. And it seems clear that uh, everything else equal, less people might be better for the planet, actually. But uh, leaving aside, you know, the climate, is uh, having less people bad for the economy or for a country? And why? And is it the opposite true that more people are instead better for the economy? On one hand, more people might mean more competition for work and uh, more hungry mouths to sustain with the same resources being divided in smaller parts. But on the other hand, more people means also more demand, more supply and increased standard of living. So which one is right? Is there an optimal number of people? And if so, where is it? And uh, so what is the last consensus among economists? What does the theory say? And what do the data say, if anything? Thank you. Okay, so Adam, I guess if you want to boil this down, it seems like the question is, uh, as a rule of thumb, are more people better for an economy and fewer people worse? And so, yeah, are declining birth rates a big problem in that sense? Hi, Jean-Pierre. This is, uh, this is an absolutely great question. We should do an episode about this camp, for sure. Like, it's such a, it's such a classic topic. It's so, so complicated, has so many facets, and that's me building up to saying there isn't a single answer to this question. It's too, it's too big, too important. It's too historic, frankly, to allow us to really say conclusively what the answer is. But we can certainly kind of review different arguments which are offered and uh, population was one of the earliest social facts counted by states, you know, in China back several millennia, in ancient Rome, in early modern Europe in the 16th, 17th centuries already. Why, first of all, this goes to this question of whether um, having a larger population is good for a country, good for a state, um, because being interested in population is being interested in manpower for the military, uh, labor for the cultivation of land, uh, and for large infrastructure products of different types. You know, everything from building the pyramids to building roads to bringing um, forested land into cultivation. Um, you need manpower. You need um, not just manpower, of course, women's labor as well. So you need labor power to do these kind of projects. As population did grow in many countries in Europe in the 18th century, a, a kind of different kind of logic kicked in. I mean, people really began to study demographers seriously in that period. This is where the origins of modern demographic statistics emerge. And quite soon, a kind of conservative Christian view of human destiny began to manifest itself. And this is associated, of course, with the English poet Thomas Malthus in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, who argued that a sexual license was unfettered by the revolutionary politics of the late 18th century, by the French Revolution, procreation would run up against absolute limits leading to, to disaster. So this is the sort of standard Malthusian story, which is the counterpart to the enthusiasm for larger population. And Malthus wasn't just, as it were, a conservative. He was actually describing the experience across much of the world until the mid-19th century, which did indeed experience centuries of growth followed by a catastrophic collapse um, in many parts of the world. And, and that changes only really in the mid-19th century. Um, the last big famines in Europe are in Scandinavia and Russia in the late 19th century. 
Western Europe in the 1840s with the potato blight. But from that sort of mid-19th century onwards, moment onwards, we see the development of what we call modern economic growth, so sustained economic development. And that too has a population story to it, but it's the kind of opposite of the Malthusian story, which is that the development of economic sophistication enabled by densities of population and densities of human interaction created bigger markets, created greater skill base, created the educational capacity, ultimately gave rise to innovation. And so this is the, you know, the, the optimistic story about population, which also has its origins in the early 19th century, but in the late 20th century in the form of, of authors like Julian Simon acquired a kind of canonical form in that population is a driver of economic growth, not a, not a handicap. So all of these arguments kind of waged back and forwards. You know, big states are more powerful Large populations that grow rapidly are a drain on resources. On the other hand, they also create the potential for more rapid economic growth. And then most recently, as we've seen large-scale demographic transition in many countries, so that's when you go through a phase in which population growth accelerates and then decelerates and then in some cases goes into reverse, what we get more and more attention paid to is the question of population structure. So this is this idea of the demographic dividend. So it isn't, as it were, simply how many people you have, but what the ratio is between young and old. And the optimal moment for economic growth, in some senses, is when the ratio of working adults to dependents, whether those are children or old people, is at its maximum. So this is the moment when population growth crests and then begins to slow down. But before you actually get to the aging phase, after having left behind the situation that many African societies are in right now, where the majority of people are young and to a degree dependent. And so this demographic dividend story about population has come to dominate. If you ask an economist now, they'll not really say, well, more or less population is good. They'll say, tell me the age structure of your population, and I'll tell you whether your population is favorable for economic growth. And um, this is a story, this is an issue that uh, we, should, we should come back to as uh, soon as we can, Cam. That was a remarkably concise answer to a really complicated question. So kudos to you, Adam. The next question comes from Sabina Henneberg. I don't think you've covered the economics of migration. And I'm particularly interested in migration across the Mediterranean from Africa into Europe and what policy options are for European policymakers. But of course, it's a big issue in the US too. So maybe you could talk about all of it. And I also wanted to tell you that I really liked the mini series on the life cycle economics that you did at the beginning of the show. Thanks. Well, well, thank you, Sabina, for listening. And it's, uh, it's, it's great to get these suggestions. Uh, maybe we should mm. do another uh, iteration of the life cycle uh, a series cam. I mean, we could, we could even treat... Uh, one of our recordings on the uh, playgrounds and the economics of playgrounds as, as part of that. But uh, it's, it was fun doing that and uh, it would be, good, it would be good, good, good to go back to it. And this issue of migration is absolutely one we should cover too. So thank you to all of you listeners for these, for these great ideas, really, for the show. I'm much appreciated. I did do a piece uh, a few months back now for Cam on the extraordinary demographic revolution uh, underway in Africa, which relates this issue of migration directly also to Jan Piero's question just a second ago about demography. And this come thinking these two things together, I think, is, is really fundamentally important. I mean, first of all, it's you know, crucially, of course, the, the demographic push in Africa is first and foremost not Europe's problems, but Africa's problem and needs to be understood in those terms. Or if, if indeed it is a problem, it's certainly a challenge and the solutions will be found there. But it, it will indeed spill over uh, to Europe as on a much smaller scale, the demographic push in Latin America and Central America is spilling over to North America and the United States in particular. And 
this is a very general answer to your prompt, um, Sabino. I mean, the, it's really clearly crucial for rich countries all over the world to develop constructive policies towards migration that strike the balance between managing the impacts on local labor markets, avoiding brain drains in the sender countries, the relatively poor countries from which the labor migrates, often skilled labor disproportionately, draining from the south to the north, and really crucially helping to foster development in Africa and Latin America, the source of so much of this migration, which is first and foremost driven by the desperation or simply the ambition of people who are trying to escape poverty or diminished circumstances, high levels of unemployment amongst young people in particular uh, in labor markets in the north. And that's, as it were, the broad outline of what needs to be done. And what's also obviously clearly true is that there are precious few actual examples of successful policy in this domain. And if you survey the range of policies in operation across the rich country world, it is basically a rather depressing vista of systematic hypocrisy, shambolic improvisation, and in many cases, of course, horrible catastrophe suffered by the migrants themselves as a result of this failing policy. And you mentioned the seaborne migration routes uh, to Europe, and, and the numbers there are really dramatic. In 2021, we think that 3,231 people were recorded dead or missing at sea in the Mediterranean and the Northwest at, at Northwest Atlantic, along which very dangerous coasts um, migrants attempt to reach Europe. And no doubt many more died en route across the Sahara before they uh, embarked on the perilous sea journey. So this is a horrible reality. It's the reality of a, of a true ongoing crisis and one uh, which I really think we should, uh, we should come back to on the show. It's, it's all the more urgent, I think, to address this issue over the summer because migration is a, is a seasonal matter and the, the crisis of migration in Europe, um, in the Mediterranean, will, will build over the summer, over the coming weeks and months. So it's uh, something we should come back to uh, urgently on the show. Yeah, listeners should definitely check out Adam's piece. He wrote it for Foreign Policy. You can find it on the website. It's called It's Africa's Century for Better or Worse. It's an excellent discussion of all of this. One other idea that I saw that I had been thinking about would be a sort of um, life advice. I think someone mentioned this on Twitter, that they would like us to do life advice. So maybe listeners could submit questions about, yeah, about their work lives or their personal lives, and, and maybe we could sort of offer some new ways of thinking about it, drawing on economics or social theory or anything like that. Anyway, maybe that's something we could discuss in-house, but uh, it was just one, one idea. That's a terrifying responsibility. Isn't that? But I think, it's, I think people would love that. I think people would love to submit questions about... And, then, and, and obviously, we, I think the proviso would have to be that people should not Take us as the final Take answer. Take our advice. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, but we we could offer, you could offer, we could offer ways of saying, like new, you know, what what ideas emerge from these questions, I think, would be would yeah. be also the point. I actually think that would be a completely yeah. interesting and novel thing we could do. Yeah, I recently heard a journalist I really, really like uh, interviewing um, Slavov Zizek, of all people, on the question of love and marriage. You see... And it was it was fantastically interesting to watch him. A, she stopped him dead in his tracks, and that's pretty hard to do to Zizek. <laughs> and B, then, his answer was 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 really fascinating. So um, I could picture doing that once a month, like the second segment. Anyway, I, like, you know, once like it being a, re a, re a recurring thing or something. Anyway, we will leave it there. And yeah, we'll be back next week.
Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And, of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone from local fishers to nuclear physicists on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to 
see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.